morning. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Thank you so much, Jason, for uh, your very warm welcome. And uh, uh, I'm very grateful, too, for uh, the support and uh, the prayers of this church for our ministry, uh, Hope for Glasgow. And uh, it's great to be here uh, in Deniston. And it's great to hear um, about the plans that you have for the place up in Ridgery. Um, my mum is from Hag Hill, and uh, I was brought up in Black Hill. So Ridley's just across the motorway, right? That's where we would go for the lucky middens um, and also to steal apples out of trees when I was a wee boy. Uh, so, you know, um, since I became a Christian 20 years ago, uh, the area that I'm from, there is no gospel witness in the Black Hill area and praying for that area for years. And, you know, I'm excited and encouraged by your moves north um, towards that area. And uh, I believe, you know, um, that you could be the answer to some of those prayers. If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We'll be in Mark's Gospel this morning, uh, beginning verse 1 through verse 20. <coughs> For our consideration this morning. Mark chapter 5, beginning verse 1. Let us hear then the word of God. They, that is Jesus and the disciples... They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself or cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And he went away and he began to proclaim or he began to preach in the Decapolis, how much the Lord had done for him. 
everyone marvelled. Just a brief prayer. Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us thyself with, within thy word. Show us ourselves and show us our Saviour. And make the book live to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this passage contains my most favourite story in the entire Bible of how Jesus transformed someone's life. The passage focuses on this man called Legion. And as chapter 5 opens, we see that he is a man who is demented. Demented due to the demons who have entered his life and are destroying him. But secondly, we see that he meets Jesus and he's wonderfully delivered. Delivered and set in his right mind. Demented, delivered. And by the end of the passage in verse 20, he becomes a disciple. As he is sent out by the Lord Jesus to preach to his family and his friends how much the Lord has done for him. Demented, delivered, and now a disciple. It's a wonderful story. A wonderful story of the transforming power of the Lord Jesus. And I know that there are many here with us this morning who can personally identify with the plight of this man. You yourself haven't once been demented. Demented under the weight of your sin and the life that you were living. Then being delivered as you were introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross for you. And from that day until this day, living as a disciple and taking every opportunity that you get to tell people how much the Lord has done for you. Now, we can't but help being drawn to the transforming power of Jesus and the transformation that was brought about in this man's life. But I don't think this is Mark's main message in this passage or indeed this chapter. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus teaches four parables. Four parables that are immediately followed by four miracles from chapter 4 verse 35 to the end of chapter 5. And these four miracles have a lot in common. In fact, the teaching point, the big idea in these four stories, these four miracles, is exactly the same. And that teaching point, that big idea is this. Jesus is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. He has come to deliver his people from darkness, desperation, and even death itself. Even in the most desperate of situations. Jesus is mighty to save. What was it we sang earlier? Nothing can stand against the power of our God. And as well as teaching this truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, Mark also throughout this chapter is making us, the reader, face up to the fact that in light of these truths about the Lord Jesus, there can only really be two responses to Jesus. And those are the responses that we see all throughout chapter 5. The response of fear or faith. So I'd like to take this passage under two headings. Firstly, verse 1 to 13. Legion meets Jesus. Legion meets Jesus. And then secondly, verses 14 to 20. The locals meet Jesus. The locals meet Jesus. Well, firstly then, verses 1 to 13. Legion meets Jesus. At the end of chapter 4. Jesus has just calmed the storm. And he, along with the disciples, arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, verse 1, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, 
to the country of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, depending on which translation of the Bible we read, which we can see from verse 20 is in the area of the Decapolis. And Decapolis just means 10 cities. And this is a Gentile area, which means it's not a Jewish area. It's Gentile, non-Jewish. And after just surviving the storm, maybe the disciples had hoped they would now get just a, a few quiet hours just to digest and get their heads around what has happened. But being with Jesus, things are never quiet for long. Their feet have barely touched the ground, verse 2. When this man who was demon-possessed on a massive scale come running towards them. At the end of chapter 4, Mark presents men inside a storm. Men inside a storm. But here at the beginning of chapter 5, he presents a storm inside a man. A storm inside a man. This man is totally demented due to the evil powers that have invaded his life. And Mark tells us that he comes running to Jesus. Can you imagine how he looked? Well, he was naked. And Luke's account of this story, Luke says, this man hadn't worn clothes for a long time. And verse 15 of, of chapter 5 of Mark tells us that when Jesus delivers him, he is sitting clothed and in his right mind. So he was, he was running about naked. His hair was probably all dirty and, and matted and, and stuck together. You know, like one of these kind of extinction rebellion folks, you know, one of these kind of a characters you see, you know, clatty looking, you know, probably like that, right? His body dirty and full of marks and wounds. Marks from all the times that the people had tried to subdue him and shackle him, with, with, shackle him with, with chains and wounds from cutting himself with stones as he, as he just couldn't bear the agony and torture of being possessed. He probably looked more like an animal than he did a man. Probably a wee bit like Gollum, out of Lord of the Rings. And I wonder how the disciples reacted. You can just picture the scene, can't you? There's Peter, big, bold Peter, rolling up his sleeves, getting ready to fight, getting ready to go ahead, as we say in Glasgow. Or maybe still some others who are, who are picking up bricks and rocks and, and getting ready to throw them at this, this thing that was coming running towards them. Or maybe still some others are starting to run back to the boat because after the storm, they've had quite enough excitement for one day. Now, the story could go straight to verse 6, but Mark, unusually, he takes some time to slow down. Now, I say unusually, as one of Mark's favourite words in his gospel is immediately or at once, and I think he uses that word or phrase over 40 times, but here, he takes some time to slow down and to explain the background of this man. Mark tells us where he is. He is among the tombs. Three times Mark tells us about the tombs. This man comes out of the tombs, verse 2. He lives among the tombs, verse 3. He has no escape from the tombs, verse 5. An outcast living amongst the tombs with the dead, for he was as good as dead himself. And friends, this is more than a living death. It's a living hell. You know, sometimes when we've experienced something wonderful or beautiful, you know, we're tempted to say, oh, you know, you know, it was, it was, it was like a wee bit of heaven and earth. Well, this is definitely not a wee bit of heaven and earth, but quite categorically, a wee bit of hell on earth. And in this story, we're going to see that this darkness of hell on earth 
can only be confronted by the glory of heaven on earth. Verse 3 and 4, he was completely alone and was a social outcast. And he had obviously terrorized the neighborhood for them to bound him with, with shackles and chains. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, Matthew says he was so fierce that no one could pass that way. But all their attempts to control and restrain this man were utterly hopeless. No one could bind him anymore. No one had the strength to subdue him. Being possessed had given him extraordinary strength. And all the antisocial behaviour orders of chains and shackles were utterly hopeless against him. Outsiders can't control him. He has no control over himself. Screaming, crying, self-harming, destroyed in every way as a human being. And friends, we would not have to go very far in this city to find people for whom this is true. And verse 5 gives the picture of how totally demented he was, always crying out day and night and cutting himself with stones. And you can imagine how this affected the local area, I suppose doing wonders for house prices. You can just picture the scene. There's the for sale sign up in the front garden. The prospective buyer is being shown around the house and boy does he like what he sees. Five big, big bedrooms, a lovely big lounge, great big kitchen and dining room and a massive garden for the wains to play in. It's ideal, exactly what I'm looking for. And I can't believe the price. It's so cheap. Then one of Legion's blood-chilling screams is heard coming through the tombs. Oh, what's that? Says the prospective buyer. Oh, eh, eh, it's, it's a wild dog, says the seller. But there's a wee boy standing close by who says, that's not a wild dog, mister. That's Legion, the demon-possessed man. He stays up in the tombs. Well, not exactly the kind of neighbourhood for bringing up the children or the grandchildren, is it? And all deals are up, regardless of how cheap the house is. Not even a tight Scotsman would be tempted to buy it. And the buyer walks away. And I'm sure that Legion would have had an effect and, and people try to get asleep for work in the morning. But Legion's neighbours being kept awake all night by his demented cries. He was the original neighbour from hell. And the scene is set. And we realise that for this demon-possessed man to be freed will take nothing less than divine intervention. Now Mark isn't ashamed or embarrassed as, as some might be to say that this man is demon-possessed. The Bible clearly distinguishes between disease, disability, mental illness, and demon-possession. The Bible's very clear on that. When Mark says he is demon-possessed, he says so because he is demon-possessed. Well, that might be so, Terry, you might be sitting thinking to yourself, and that's quite a picture you've also painted of that man. But I'm so glad that I'm absolutely nothing like that man. I've got my clothes on. I'm able to reason with things and, and no one's had the need to tie me up well for quite some time, really. I am not demon-possessed. Well, that may be true. But friends, the Bible doesn't say that by nature we are all demon-possessed. But the Bible does say that this man is, a, is an illustration, a technicolor picture, you might say, of the terrible plight that affects every human being, each and every person. The Bible does say that by nature, all men, women and boys and girls are ruled and held in bondage by dark and sinister forces. 
You may remember the verses that, uh, that Jason read to us at the beginning of our service from Ephesians chapter 2, the words of the Apostle Paul. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So according to the Apostle Paul, we, we are living amongst the tombs, just like this man. You follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the hearts of those who are disobedient. All of us lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest of mankind, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So the Bible is absolutely clear that this man is, is representative of something that is real and universal in the human condition. We are dead in trespasses and sins in which we walk. We are all in that sense living amongst the tombs with no means of escape either in ourselves or with the help of others. We might not be possessed like this man, but by our very natures, we are controlled by that which is dark and sinister. So this man is not as far removed from us as you might at first think. We might have nice houses to go home to. We might not run about naked. But the fact of the matter is this, that by our very natures, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, living amongst the tombs. And just like this man, we are utterly powerless to do anything about it. And no human power can help us either. The only hope is coming to Jesus Christ. Well, this man does come to Jesus, verse 6 and 7. He meets Jesus. But we see the tension that exists within him, verse 6. He knows that Jesus can deliver him. And so he was drawn to Jesus. But he cannot yield to Jesus. He fell down before him, cries out in reverence and cries, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, do not torment me. No more torment, please, Jesus. I couldn't take any more torment. I've had enough torment to last me ten lifetimes. He knows who Jesus is. Friends, there are no atheists among the demons. They believe that Jesus is the son of the most high God. But it's not enough just to believe in the identity of Jesus. Even the devils believe that. Our belief in Jesus' identity must lead us to yield to Jesus and to his lordship over our lives, verse 7. But we see that this man couldn't yield. He was afraid. He was afraid of what this change might bring. And friends, Mark wants us to see that this is the same for us all. That no man or no woman yields easily to Jesus. If we think it's easy, we forget the grip that sin and Satan has upon people's lives. An old Deniston boy, Sinclair Ferguson, I would say one of the best preachers in the world and one of the best Christian writers in the world. He's got a wee commentary called Let's Study Mark. And I was fortunate enough that he used to be my minister back in the throne uh, when I was first a Christian. But here's what, here's what Sinclair writes in his wee commentary, Let's Study Mark. Tragically, like Legion, men often hold on to their bondage and evil rather than yield to the pain of transformation by Christ's power and grace. You see, it's no easy coming to Jesus. See what Sinclair writes there? It's the pain of transformation. Being transformed by Jesus is painful. You all know that I work with people who are, who are broken with drug and alcohol addiction. 
And I see this all the time. People are drawn to Jesus. They're crying out to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on me. But Jesus, I just can't give up that which I've become so accustomed to. I can't give up the drink. I can't give up the drugs. They cannot, they cannot give up the thing that is killing them. They cannot give it up easily. It's the pain of transformation. You know this in your own life if you're a Christian. And I certainly know it in mine. It's the pain of transformation. We cannot make light of people's situations and tell them that coming to Jesus is easy. It's no easy to come to Jesus. It's painful to come to Jesus. But it's worth it. Eternally worth it to come to Jesus. Well, in verse 8, a conversation now begins between Jesus and the demons. And Jesus asks, what is your name? And the reply given in verse 9 shows us the extent of this man's possession. My name is Legion, for we are many. So this man wasn't possessed by one, but thousands of demons. I just can't get out of your heads, can we? But thousands of demons. Well, verse 10 comes, and these thousands of demons, they know their place. They know that a guy more powerful than them is standing right before them. And so they start to discuss terms of withdrawal. And they beg Jesus not to send him out of the country. And as there is a herd of pigs in a nearby hill, they beg Jesus, please allow us to enter the pigs. Well, verse 11 to 13, Jesus gives permission. The man is delivered as the demons come out of him and are sent into the pigs. And some 2,000 pigs rush down the steep bank into the sea and they're all drowned. And you'd be right to ask, why? Why did this happen? Why did this take place like this? And you wouldn't be the first person to ask that question. Over the years, many people have been puzzled by this. The 19th century British philosopher, a guy called Bertrand Russell, um, points to this story in a, in a kind of an essay that he, he wrote, uh, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he, point, he pointed to this story and he says that Jesus could not possibly be a good person and treat these pigs in this way. Well, we know that Jesus is good. So why this dreadful destruction? Well, no answer is given by Mark, but there are probably several reasons. Um, and I'd like to give you four, and they all begin with the letter P. Firstly, the pigs dying shows us the purpose, the purpose and the ultimate aim of the demons. What happened to the pigs? They died. They were destroyed. That's what the demons were eventually going to do to the man. They were going to kill him. They were already destroying him, but painfully, slowly. So secondly, it shows us the power and the authority of Jesus. It shows us that as powerful as these demons might have been, it shows us the absolute power and authority that Jesus has over these demons. And thirdly, and I think less obviously to see, I think this was done as a proof, a proof for the benefit of the man. How could this man be persuaded that these demons would, would never be able to enter and dominate his life again? How could he be sure that this deliverance, this salvation, which Jesus had brought to him, would never be lost? Well, there was one way, and Jesus chose it. Any time this man doubted his salvation, he would remember in his mind's eye the 2,000 pigs rushing down the steep hill into the sea and being drowned. And that's how he could be sure they would never come back. And fourthly, it shows us priority. Priority. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
not pigs. Saving sinners is his priority. But friends, that's just not the way of it in many places around the world. Actually, where animals are valued more than people. In India, government trucks drive around the city streets and they throw meat and food to stray dogs and animals. And at the same time, these same government workers walk about the streets with big batons and they batter the life out of human beings who are, lying, who, who are sitting there begging and stuff. Even think about it in our own countries. How much gets spent, and I'm not having a go at any of you in case you know he's fond of this category, but how much gets spent in dogs? I mean, um, you know, you know doggy pedicures, uh, doggy haircuts, doggy classes, doggy all sorts, you know? And the same people that spend all sorts in dogs, you know, best of meat and everything for dogs, and they, they, they would walk by a homeless guy and never even think, ever, you know, he might be getting down in their hunkers and buying the guy a cup of tea or a Greg's or, or anything like that. No, it shows us the priority. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not pigs. The Lord Jesus assures his followers that they are worth many sparrows. But it also seems that the deliverance of one man is certainly worth 2,000 pigs. These pigs would have been worth a huge amount of money to the owners, but not as much as this man. Yes, even a man like this was worth to God. These pigs perish for the soul of this man, but friends, the wonder of the gospel is this. The Lord Jesus Christ perished on the cross, a far greater cost than anything this world has known, in order that all those who put their trust in him might regain life. Well, you would think that this holocaust of pigs would, would cause quite a stir, and it did. And this brings me secondly to verses 14 to 20. The locals meet Jesus. The locals meet Jesus. Well, verse 14 opens, not surprisingly, by those who were in charge of the pigs fleeing to tell what had happened. And you can just picture them. You can just picture them running down the hill shouting, the pigs, the pigs, the pigs. And folks saying, What's going on? They say, we don't know, but it's got something to do with the pigs. I mean, no wonder. They were probably on a five or an hour or something, you know. Watch the pigs, five or an hour. To lose one or two pigs to wolves or something might have been considered to be a bad day. But to lose all 2,000, all in the one day. So they run down the hill shouting, the pigs, the pigs, the pigs. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Verse 14. And when they came, they saw legion. The man who was demented has now been delivered. I'm sure they had to look twice to see if this was the same person. A wee bit like those, those uh, adverts sometimes you see in uh, magazines. You know the sort of a thing? Advertising weight loss products or some amazing diet. You know, there's usually the picture of the before and the, the picture of the after, you know? The picture before is some huge guy. And the picture after's got him standing in a, a massive pair of trousers. You know the sort of a thing, don't you? And when you're kind of a looking at that, you kind of a think, you have to look twice. You say, that can't be the same guy. And you peer and you look close and you say, that can't be. And you look and you see that it is the same person. Now, I'm sure the locals had to do a double take to see if this was the same guy. And they did. And it was. And this is a great picture of the transformation that Jesus brings. This man was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Great transformation. 
He was sitting. Aye, we're all sitting. What's hanging me about that? Well, this guy couldn't sit still. He's always running about the place all the time. He was clothed, and then he was, he was in his right mind. The man who'd been running about naked was now clothed. The man who was crazy was now in his right mind. Well, how would you expect the locals to act, react to this amazing healing? You'd probably expect thousands to be converted, wouldn't you? Because that's what a lot of folks would have us believe. If only God would just turn up, do some massive work, show some great sign of power, then obviously people would put their trust in Jesus. Well, here is a great a sign of great power par excellence. And how do the people react? Well, how would you expect them to react? To be overjoyed at the man who'd absolutely terrorised their neighbourhood is now in his right mind. They probably knew this man, maybe grown up with him, went to school with him. Perhaps some of them were even related to him. But there's no welcome for this man. Or maybe you would expect him to hail Jesus as a great miracle worker and carry him shoulder high all around the area. Or maybe you would expect, as in other parts of the gospel, they would bring out all their relatives with diseases and disabilities to be healed. But no, that's not how they reacted. And the last word in verse 15 is where this passage punches you right in the solar plexus. And the locals were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I think verse 17 is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Power of God before them, and they begged Jesus to leave. They were crying, Gone, please just go. Please just leave us alone. We don't want you around here, Jesus. We don't want you, Jesus. Well, why? Why this reaction? I think there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, these people valued property more than they valued people. Sure, the man who had the legion was now delivered and in his right mind. House prices would, would again be on the rise. People would be able to once again walk the streets in absolute safety. And a good night's sleep could now be enjoyed by all. But at what cost? Well, to have this man freed had cost 2,000 pigs. It had been a great hit to the economy. Well, what if Jesus stayed there and began to deliver more people? Oh, well, no, we couldn't have that because our economy would end up becoming like that of the United Kingdom after all this lockdown nonsense. No, no question. Jesus must go. But secondly, and this is where Mark begins to draw his contrast between fear and faith. Secondly, on a deeper level, they beg Jesus to leave because they are afraid. They are afraid to change and afraid to be changed. If you've got a Bible, look back to, to chapter 4 and to the calming of the storm. Now the storm had made the disciples, half of them were fishermen, remember. The storm had absolutely terrified the disciples, right? Thought they were going to die. But look, the storm that absolutely terrified them has been dealt with by Jesus. And then look what happens. The disciples are even more afraid of Jesus. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They become more afraid of Jesus, the greater power. And it's the same here in chapter 5. It's the same for the locals. Legion had terrified them. Some in the crowd were probably amongst those who had 
tried to restrain him in the past, but they knew it was a hopeless task. But now they come and they find him sitting, clothed and in his right mind. And how do they react to that? They're afraid. If they were afraid of this madman before, it seems that they are much more afraid of his changed condition. They knew that something greater than anything they had previously known had happened before them. And it caused them more fear than this poor wretched man had ever done. Faced with the reality of the power of heaven, they are more scared than they were of the horror of hell amongst them. They are afraid, verse 15. They were afraid that the transforming power that Jesus displayed in Legion's life would produce a similar result in them. And friends, you know that reaction, don't you? You know that reaction amongst your family, your friends, your neighbours, your workmates, your classmates. Wherever you find yourself, you know that reaction. People are happy to talk to you about a whole host of things until you mention Jesus, church, or the Bible. They go, oh, hold on a minute. Let me just stop you right there. I don't want to hear that. I, don't, I want none of that nonsense. I don't want it, and I don't want to hear it. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of change, and they're afraid to be changed by Jesus. Maybe that's you as you sit here this morning or, or watching online. Maybe you come along to this service every week and you sit under God's word every week. But you're smart enough to know that coming to Jesus will mean change in your life. And you're afraid. Again from Sinclair Ferguson. It is so tragic that men, both then and now, would rather cling to the sins that make them sick and will ultimately destroy them. And they beg Jesus to leave. Rather than be transformed by him. Well the locals are filled with fear. And they beg Jesus to leave. But look at the faith of the man who had the legion. The man who had the legion begs that he might be with Jesus. And that, that same language is used when Jesus calls the twelve apostles. That they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. And it's quite understandable, of course, that this man would want to be with Jesus. Of course he would. He loved Jesus. Jesus was his saviour, his deliverer. Of course he would want to go with Jesus. Of course he would want to go and be his com companion and be his disciple. And he was ready to give up home and country to be with Jesus. But these verses teach us that the Lord Jesus Christ knows better than his people what is the right position for them to be in. Did you notice as we read through these verses uh, that Jesus has begged four times for something? Twice it's the, the demons who beg Jesus, firstly in verse 10, and then in verse 12, verse 10, don't send us out of the country. Jesus agrees. Verse 12, uh, the demons beg to be sent into the pigs. Jesus agrees. Then it's the locals. It's their turn. They beg Jesus to leave the region, verse 17, and Jesus agrees. But the man who had the legion, he begs to go with Jesus. But the Lord Jesus Christ says no. No to his request. For he had other work for him to do. The Lord Jesus knew how this man could glorify him best. And friends, this teaches us that the thing that we might have our hearts set upon or the place that we hope to go or the thing that we hope to do 
good though it may be in itself, has to come under the authority of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what being a disciple means. Being obedient to Jesus. We are to go where we are sent, stay where we are put, and do what we are told. Well, verse 19, Jesus was very gracious to the locals. The very same ones who had begged him to leave. Jesus is gracious to them because Jesus left behind a living testimony of his transforming power. And here's what he said to the man who had the legion. Go home. Go home to your friends. Go home to your own people. The locals had begged Jesus to go, but the man who had the legion was commanded to Go home and tell your family and your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And for Legion, this, I am sure, was not an easy task, not a comfortable task, but it was a task that he was qualified to do. He was qualified to go out and to proclaim about Jesus. And friends, if you are a Christian, then you are qualified as well. And it may not be an easy nor a comfortable task for you either. But it is a task you are more than qualified to undertake. Legion is commanded to go. To go and to spread all that he knows about the Lord Jesus. And all that he knows about the Lord Jesus doesn't really amount to very much at all. He has no theology degree. He has never attended the Cornhill training course or Highland Theological College. He has never even heard one Mark Morris sermon. Not one. Not one. In fact, he has never even heard a sermon at all. He has never attended a small group or a prayer meeting or a Bible study. But he knows who Jesus is. He has experienced God's power in his life. And he knows what it means to be set free. And to have his life restored. And friends, that is enough for this man to have a ministry. This is what people do when they have met Jesus. And what Jesus has done for us is certainly not less than what he did for Legion. And so friends, the mission or the ministry that we first and foremost have is to go home. We are to go home and tell our families and our friends how much the Lord has done for us. Now, it's great to support missionary organisations or even to become a missionary in a foreign land ourselves. It's right for us to do that individually and collectively as a church. But our mission always begins from the fireplace out. Our mission always begins from the fireplace out. And friends, this is a great challenge to me personally. But I just want to ask you, how are you getting on in that mission? How are you getting on in that mission? When was the last time you spoke to your parents or your children or your brothers and sisters or your neighbours or your friends or, or your workmates? When was the last time you spoke to folks like that about how much the Lord has done for you? How he's had mercy upon you? When was the last time you've done that? And I want to address just particularly husbands and fathers. When was the last time you read the Bible and prayed with your wife? 
When was the last time you, you led a Bible study in your own home? Maybe you read all sorts of Bible studies for the church or the city, but when was the last time you led one in your own home? When was the last time you spoke to your children or your grandchildren of the transforming power of Jesus in your life? When was the last time you told them um, how much the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you? Gentlemen, we are the spiritual heads of our families and our homes. And our children will listen to us much, much more than they will any other family member. It's just a fact. Us telling um, them about Jesus is the greatest and most important thing we could ever, ever speak to them about. Well, verse 20, our closing verse. The man who had the legion obeyed his Lord and he went home and he proclaimed or he preached in the Decapolis how much the Lord had done for him and how he had mercy upon him. And the people marveled. And in chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is again in the region of the Decapolis, crowds bring a deaf and dumb man to him to be healed. I suspect they've done this because of the faithful, consistent, Christ-centered ministry of the man who had the legion. Well, as Jesus gets into the boat and heads for the other side, I think the things that Mark has taught us from this passage are firstly, the power of Satan is real. His purpose and ultimate aim is to destroy the lives of men. And we as men are utterly helpless and powerless against him. Secondly, Jesus Christ alone has the power over evil. He has the amazing power to transform any one of us. Despite our condition, despite our backgrounds, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, he alone has the power to transform us. And thirdly, and sadly, the human heart is evil. And we would rather ask Jesus to go. Well, friends, Mark has been highlighting to us these two responses to Jesus. As we close, Mark's question comes to us. How will you respond? What will you do? Will you ask Jesus to go? Or will you ask to go with Jesus? Will you fear Jesus and send him away like the Gerasenes? Or will you, like Legion, trust him and go and do what he says? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you eh, for your word. We ask that you would help each of us to make proper applications of this word so that all of us would have a testimony like Legion. That our chains fell off. Our heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. In Jesus' name, amen.